The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is July 17th, 2019, and on behalf of the director uh, of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff at the USAC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The USAC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, as always, we'd like to extend a special thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation for their support in everything we do here at the AHEC. The book for tonight's lecture is on sale for the next few minutes in our gift shop. Uh, after the lecture, it'll be for sale behind the lecture hall. All proceeds from the book sale do go to our foundation uh, to support the hard work they do. So at this point, it's my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Mr. Jared Frederick received his undergraduate degree from Pennsylvania State University, and more importantly, his master's degree from West Virginia University, uh, the best school out there. Uh, he is an avid Civil War and World War II living historian and has served as a seasonal park ranger at both Gettysburg National Military Park and Harper's Ferry National Military Historic Park. Mr. Frederick has appeared on Turner Classic Movies, PBS, C-SPAN, and Pennsylvania Cable Network to educate a wide audience uh, on the history of the Civil War, World War II, and the history of Pennsylvania. <coughs> currently, <coughs> sorry, he's not muted right now either. Uh, he's currently an instructor of history at Penn State Altoona, and in addition to his role as the president of the nonprofit Blair County Historical Society. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mr. Jared Frederick. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. I'm really pleased to be here at AHEC this evening. This is a place that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I've been doing a living history here uh, for uh, about 10 years out on the Army Heritage Trail. And uh, all I can say is it's good to be given a presentation in the air-conditioned splendor uh, rather than uh, uh, old wool clothing I'm out on the Army Heritage Trail. So it's, a, it's just a real pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, my book, Dispatches of D-Day, in many ways takes a very different perspective on what is known as Operation Overlord. And as I was researching this book, people were often asking me, what could you possibly write that is new and fresh about D-Day that hasn't been written before? And the further and further I dug, I realized that there were many ways to answer that and that there was a lot yet that hadn't been uncovered. Uh, in the opening phases of Operation Overlord, there were some 120,000 allied participants involved. And each one of those individuals had a story. And for most of them, their stories have never been recorded. Uh, and so as we go along in my presentation this evening, uh, I'm going to introduce you to some of the people that I met along the way and uh, introduce you to some of their very compelling stories as we move along. So of all places to begin, uh, the first one is 
somewhat unlikely. And we're going to begin our journey this evening in the streets of Austin, Texas. Why Austin, Texas? The basis of my book was built upon newspaper archives. How did newspapers report the invasion? How did it chronicle how invasion participants uh, became involved in that conflict? And also something that's been completely overlooked by historians is how have family members and citizens on the home front react? How did they react to this overwhelming news? And uh, so of all people, I thought that this gentleman had one of the most uh, profound reactions to all of it, and his name is Horace Busby. Horace Busby was the editor for the University of Texas student newspaper uh, in 1944. And uh, he, this is what he had to say um, about that moment. He said, roommates were rolled out of bed, lights snapped on as fast as could be, uh, screamed down the hallways, telephones began to ring, and a rain-drenched Austin came to life. And you could insert the name of any town or any community in that phrase with the word Austin, and it would still be applicable. D-Day was this sort of universal emotional experience that the American people went through collectively. And it's not just a story about those young guys who were on the Higgins boats or jumping behind enemy lines. It's also about their family members and their loved ones. And so I try to balance both of those perspectives throughout the book. In many ways, the story also begins here, where for so many it ended. The Normandy American Cemetery in Colville-sur-Mer that overlooks Omaha Beach. And I had the opportunity to visit this place for the first time in March of 2013. And uh, here I am there overlooking Omaha Beach uh, in a rather uh, soggy, rain-drenched environment. And I had the unfortunate distinction of being in France during the largest snowstorm in a century. And uh, suffice it to say, it, it put a damper on uh, some of my goals and uh, what I hoped to see while I was there. Uh, but my final day of the trip took me to the Normandy American Cemetery. And by that moment, the, the snow had melted, uh, but the rains remained fairly persistent. And it was not a very pleasant day to be going to, to visit this landscape. And uh, I snapped this photograph in the background. And when I did that, I realized that I was completely alone in this cemetery. Uh, there was not another visitor in sight. It was me, and it was them. And what heightened this uh, emotional experience even more so for me is that it had been 20 years to the day that my grandfather had passed away. Uh, my grandfather, Thomas W. Nickham Jr., was a sergeant in the 4th Infantry Division. He landed on Utah Beach on D-Day. And unfortunately, he passed away when I was a mere five years old. And so I never had the opportunity to connect with him personally to discover his stories. Uh, but nonetheless, I had this desire to kind of dig into the historical record and find out what truly was the D-Day experience for common Americans. And something else that I realized while I was standing there is the fact that even though he passed away in 1993, he lived almost a half a century longer than those young men who were buried beneath these white headstones in the cemetery. And so something like that was certainly in my mind as well as I was starting to write all this. Something else that caught my eye was this tombstone. And uh, you probably can't make it out here in, in the lighting, but it is the tombstone of Robert P. Spadig, who was a lieutenant in the 4th Infantry Division. 
And what caught my eye here is the fact that there were coins resting on top of it. And of course, according to tradition, you know, each one of these coins represents a certain degree of symbolism. And I found out after I looked at all of this that those coins indicated that somebody who had served with Lieutenant Spadig in combat and was with him when he was killed had just recently been there. And he put these coins on top of that headstone. And what made it even more unique is that all of those coins were stamped in the 1940s. And so as best as I could tell, that uh, person may have had that pocket change with them uh, while they were in France at the time. And of course, as research often does, it brings about one story, and in this case, one image after another. And it really helps when you can put a face to the name. And in many ways, this is what I was trying to do in my book, is that I was trying to give a voice to those that had been largely forgotten by the historical record, uh, including Lieutenant Spadig. Now, in another very unusual way, the, the story of my book unusually begins in a dumpster. And uh, that often gives people pause, and you know, what does he mean by that? Uh, well, one day a student of mine brought in a stack of yellowed newspapers into the classroom. And as it turns out, uh, one of his neighbors had passed away, and the neighbor had been alive during the Second World War. And uh, she had apparently kept you know, a stack of wartime newspapers chronicling the major headlines of the time. And uh, whatever value they were of, to the original owner, they were not of much value to the children and grandchildren who threw it in a dumpster. And my student went out and recovered these newspapers. He brought them into class because he knew that I liked, in his words, old stuff like this. Uh, and uh, we began to, to pour through these pages, and I realized just what an incredible story could be found within them. Uh, and so this spark led to, in many ways, an all-consuming quest. And what originally was intended to be you know, gathering information and material for classroom exercises uh, turned into this mission, and I ended up transcribing 300,000 words of 1944 newspaper accounts between March and August of 1944, looking at the invasion. Uh, and indeed, the visual that we see up here on the screen uh, suggests how important it was to Americans of 1944. The story of D-Day, it was bigger than Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight. It was bigger than the Kennedy assassination. It was bigger than Apollo 11, the 50th anniversary, which we're just about to celebrate. And the reason why it was a bigger news story than all of those other milestone events is the fact that D-Day affected every American town, regardless of how big or small it was. Because in every one of those communities, there was a son or a daughter who was in England, in the English Channel, or in France. Um, and it was a highly personal event, despite the fact that it was well over 3,000 miles away. And so, therefore, I think it's very safe to assume that D-Day is the biggest news story of the 20th century, bar none. And so I certainly had an abundance of material to work with. One of the main newspapers that I worked with with uh, a lot of consistency um, is the Army publication, which is you know, still in uh, print to this very day, and that is Stars and Stripes. And this was the mouthpiece of the common soldier. 
And uh, it's often remembered for the very colorful cartoons that GI cartoonist Bill Malden created. Uh, and if uh, we look up here to the front page uh, that I have recreated up here, uh, you know, we have uh, the old cavalryman who's putting his horse out of misery, uh, his army jeep. And, uh, you know, th these were the, the, the sorts of uh, uh, cartoons with candor and uh, down-to-earth humor uh, that people like Bill Malden would bring to soldiers on the front lines. Uh, but on top of that, too, uh, Stars and Stripes conveyed a whole lot of really important themes, and I think you could say morals, to its readership during the Second World War. This was the biggest newspaper in the world at the time, when you think about it. And this is what the newspaper said. It said, the quest to self-educate will in itself make you a better informed soldier, a better educated American. And in the days ahead, when it becomes your job to help decide issues on which the future all depends, your knowledge of the big picture will make you a better citizen, and in a small way, that will make this a better world. And so the, the, the point that is being made here is that if you want to truly remake the world, you want to make it better, you want to rid it of fascism, you better be prepared to be an informed citizen because your access to information and your knowledge of current events are going to be some of the key issues which are going to help bring about that better world. And so Stars and Stripes, the staff, firmly believed that a well-informed soldier is the best type of soldier. And of course, one of the, the other you know, proponents of this same sort of ideology was the best known reporter in the United States at that time, and that is Ernie Pyle. Um, a rather small and unassuming reporter from Indiana. Uh, he was known as Mr. America at the time, and he was read by 13 million loyal readers. And his various adventures took him to Alaskan gold mining camps, to Memphis trash dumps. And uh, like so many other kind of populists of the time, he wanted to find these stories of the unrepresented American. And he transferred those same sort of qualities and style of reporting uh, into his various combat uh, uh, reports as well. Uh, and therefore, you know, those were turned into books and he earned a Pulitzer Prize by the time he found himself in England in 1944. And uh, here we can see him with uh, some tankers in Italy uh, just a, a few months before the Normandy invasion. Also speaking on this notion of literacy, uh, we also have these pocket service editions, as they were known, that we can see up here on the screen. And American publishers printed 125 million books and these kind of uh, portable format for service members overseas. They did them free of charge, and they included uh, you know, modern and contemporary classics like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and The Great Gatsby. And GIs traded these like you wouldn't believe. Uh, it doesn't matter how tattered they were. It doesn't matter how many times they had been exchanged. Uh, these were sacred texts uh, in many ways to uh, some of the soldiers. And uh, one sailor was uh, very astute in noting that throwing one of these booklets into the trash bin was tantamount to slapping your grandmother. Uh, that was his whole philosophy. And it really just goes to show how important literacy and reading was to these guys. And little wonder so many of them make use of the GI Bill after the Second World War comes to an end. They had a love of reading and knowledge and education that was instilled in them at this very moment in the months leading up to the Normandy invasion. And uh, in addition to all of this, uh, one of Ernie Pyle's comrades who certainly had a, a name for himself as well, John Steinbeck, author of uh, Mice and Men and the Grapes of Wrath, 
This is what he had to say about Ernie Pyle's style of writing. He said, there is the war of the homesick, weary, funny, violent, common men who wash their socks in their helmets, complain about the food, whistle at the girls, and bring themselves through as dirty a business as the world has ever seen, and they do it with humor and dignity and courage, and that is Ernie Pyle's war. And in many ways, that same sort of philosophy became the backbone of my book as I was trying to uncover these common experiences of foot soldiers, sailors, and airmen. Now, in these months of building up to the Normandy invasion, uh, the British to this very day refer to this as the friendly invasion because there were about two million Allied service members who, for this short amount of time, ended up calling England home. And uh, as you can very well imagine, there are various degrees of fraternization uh, with the British. And I think this photograph up here on the screen certainly captures the essence of that. And in this sort of environment where basic items and certain delicacies had been rationed in Great Britain for going on four years at this point, uh, stuff like Lucky Strike cigarettes, bubble gum, candy, silk stockings, uh, they were hot item commodities. Uh, they could be used as a form of currency. And indeed, uh, the American soldier that we see um, up here on the screen probably realizes that. Uh, there were certain measures that were taken to avoid these varying degrees of fraternization, but they didn't always work because uh, in the months before and after D-Day, about 20,000 Anglo-American uh, babies were born out of wedlock. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, a friendly invasion indeed. Uh, one of uh, the Americans who were covering this sort of lifestyle is the gentleman who we see um, in the bottom left corner here. And that's uh, a gentleman uh, that many of you have probably heard of. Uh, that is Andy Rooney of future 60 Minutes fame, uh, who got his uh, journalistic career jump-started when he became a sergeant with Stars and Stripes. Uh, and so it's also important to keep in mind that this reporting during the Second World War is laying the bedrock for some of uh, you know, the, the best-known television journalists of the 1950s and beyond. Uh, to suggest that everything is friendly and doing really well, though, is certainly not a completely accurate picture because, of course, we would be remiss if, if we forgot the fact that the United States military is still segregated. It had been segregated since the 1790s. Of course, we fought a, a civil war in the First World War with a, a segregated army. And in Great Britain, this posed a little bit of a conundrum because there was no color line in Great Britain. There was no such thing as segregation in the British Isles. Uh, and so African-Americans, soldiers that were over there, they felt that uh, they were treated more like Americans 3,000 miles away from home than what they were in their own country. Uh, and a lot of these individuals felt that their good deeds in this conflict would become the basis for a broader civil rights movement that would come to fruition after the Second World War. And indeed, they were very right on this point. Uh, but uh, one of the, the leading voices of the civil rights movement here in England and in the United States was a Pennsylvania newspaper that was known as the Pittsburgh Courier. And the Pittsburgh Courier was the largest read African-American newspaper in the United States. It had a circulation of about 250,000 copies. And uh, the Pittsburgh Courier initiated this campaign that became known as the Double V Campaign, 
Victory at home and victory overseas, suggesting the very thing that I just mentioned a moment ago, that if our soldiers, over one million black troops, do well overseas, who is to say to them that they have not earned the right of citizenship? Uh, but sadly enough, that was a hard pill for some people to swallow in 1944. And uh, as one of them, as one of those black troops uh, said in retrospect, he said, we black troops went overseas to fight the Germans, but we had to fight the Yanks first. Um, and so certainly there's a degree of internal discord being expressed here in the weeks and months leading up to the invasion. Uh, we see a similar degree of inequity among uh, female members of the U.S. military um, and also those serving in the ranks of journalism. Uh, here we can see a very iconic photograph of female journalists who are preparing for the big jump across the English Channel. And one very notable correspondent in this regard um, is the woman seen in uh, the bottom photograph here. And her name is Martha Gellhorn. She worked for Collier's Magazine. And she had one hurdle and one roadblock thrown up in front of her one after the other because her male superiors, or chaperones if you want to call them that, uh, did not want her to go to the front lines to report of the combat. Um, and as she said very defiantly um, to uh, some of her colleagues back in New York City, she said, it is necessary that I report this war. And she said, I need to see for those who cannot see, and I need to present a picture uh, to those Americans who are back home and want an accurate representation of what is happening over here in Europe. Perhaps the biggest stumbling block of all that she was going to come across was her own husband, who was also very well known. His name is Ernest Hemingway, also a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he also happens to work for Collier's Magazine. So they work for the same publication, and Hemingway is fearful that his wife is going to steal the headlines, and so he was one of the main perpetrators in trying to you know, thwart any of her you know, frontline forays or adventures or anything like that. Um, so as you can very well guess, that does lead to their divorce uh, by the end of uh, 1944, and uh, certainly reporting on the war put them at odds, despite uh, a lot of the traits that they did have in common. Now, talking a lot about the invasion, uh, it's also important to remember the fact that for members of the U.S. Army Air Forces, the invasion of Europe was already well underway. It had been underway since early 1943, because day after day and week after week, uh, the U.S. Army 8th Air Force was obliterating German cities and uh, occupied cities in France as well. Uh, ultimately bringing about a, a destruction of the German war machine. And uh, one of the, the Air Force's chiefs, Henry Hap Arnold, who took uh, uh, flight lessons from the Wright brothers, no less, and uh, rose to uh, be a, a top commander here, um, he said, we are invading, this is what he told the reporters, and not at some remote beachhead. We are hitting the enemy where he lives. He knows if he cannot stop us, he's licked. Uh, and so this was the conviction in mind. This was all part of the grand strategy that was ongoing. And these airmen went through some of the, the most painful rigors imaginable, uh, flying at 40,000 feet, uh, where the temperature could be 50 below zero. Their uh, fuselages, they were not compressed. Sometimes they were standing at their guns for eight or nine hours at a time. And the U.S. 8th Air Force suffered more casualties in the Second World War than what the Marine Corps did in the entirety of the Pacific Campaign. 
Uh, so that really, you know, that number really puts things into perspective when you think about it. And uh, this was one of those many stepping stones leading toward the inevitable, the invasion of mainland Europe. And this photograph right here, I think, just does a stupendous job hinting at some of the major logistical feats that were being undertaken in uh, the preparation for all of this. Uh, this is a harbor in Devon. This photograph was taken just a few days before the invasion. And as one reporter phrased it, he said it was like a mechanical Niagara. So picture Niagara Falls, and instead of picturing all that water pouring over the cliff's edge, uh, picture this perpetual tide of men and machinery and equipment and vehicles and tanks and ships and everything imaginable that is going to be required for these millions of men who will soon, uh, soon be storming uh, the, the beaches of Normandy and beyond. In the background of this uh, photograph, we can see one of the underappreciated uh, under workhorses um, of the Army and the Navy, and that is the LST, the Landing Ship Tank. Uh, that could uh, open up hatchways at its bow at the front. And this is a vessel that could hold up to about two dozen Sherman tanks. And uh, behind it was the idea that you could take material directly from ship to shore. You didn't necessarily need a pier or a dock or anything like that. And that was going to be one of the fundamental components of allowing Operation Overlord to be successful. So as we are now just a few days before uh, the, the, it's all about to be sprung, I'd like to introduce you to this gentleman right here um, who ends up becoming one of the major characters in my book. And I didn't know who he was before I started researching all of this. Uh, his name was Don Whitehead. He worked for the Associated Press. And he was just as gifted a writer as Ernie Pyle. But uh, history has overlooked him for one reason or another. And probably sometime around June 2nd or June 3rd, 1944, he and one of his colleagues were woken up in the middle of the night. They were told to gather their things and that they were going to be taken to a point of embarkation. And when they reached that undisclosed location, uh, a general confronted he and his colleague. And this is what the general said. He said, you both know how to take care of yourselves and won't forget to duck. But if an unlucky shell should get you, we'll do all we can. If, we're wounded, if you're wounded, we'll take care of you. If you're killed, we'll bury you. Meantime, we'll feed you. Uh, so a, a rather ominous guarantee that this uh, general offered here. And for Whitehead and his colleague, they had this vision of a theoretical last supper that was uh, emerging here um, as a result. And they kind of lost their appetite after uh, the general had informed them of this. And of course, the man who is orchestrating all of this, the only man who could hit the launch button, so to speak, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, a man who had never seen combat, never had served in combat in his entire life. His skills and his talents lay elsewhere. He was a master of organization and collaboration and bringing people of diverse attitudes and mindsets together. And that sort of uh, temperate, moderate disposition that Eisenhower had would, of course, later serve him well in his presidency as well. And uh, of course, he probably wouldn't have been president if Operation Overlord had failed. Uh, but in these weeks leading up to the invasion, 
uh, Eisenhower, even though he presented this, this sort of calm demeanor, he was a nervous wreck inside. He was smoking four packs of cigarettes a day. And Anne O'Hare McCormick of the New York Times had this to say uh, about what Eisenhower and like-minded generals were doing. She said, never has the fate of so many depended on the judgment of so few. And Red Mueller, who was an NBC correspondent, he said that it seemed as if each one of the four stars on Eisenhower's shoulders weighed a ton. It, it, the burden just weighed down on him. You know, it, it was unimaginable. Uh, a few people could contemplate what had to be done here in, in the, the coming days and the coming weeks. And certainly, you know, victory was not a foregone conclusion. And in recognizing this, Eisenhower penned this letter, which the public didn't see until decades later, uh, in which he takes full responsibility for the failure of Operation Overlord. And in this very brief letter that would be issued to the press if the men were turned back on the beaches, uh, he said that, that the Army, the Navy, the Air, they did everything in their power that devotion to duty could do. The full blame rests with me. That is what he was about to say. And that is leadership, taking accountability, taking responsibility, good or bad, regardless what happens. And this is just one of many reasons why so many people were endeared to Eisenhower in both the 40s, the 50s, and beyond. What always uh, strikes interest to me in this letter is how he dates it. He writes July 5th. He doesn't write June 5th on the date that he actually wrote it. He is such a nervous wreck that he gets the month wrong in this confession letter, if you want to call it that. Um, and so indeed, there was a burden of command, a glorious burden that was placed upon his shoulders. Luckily for his men, this ends up becoming the document that they read on a widespread basis instead. This is Dwight Eisenhower's order of the day. It is a mere 130-word document, and as far as I like to think of it, it is the 1944 equivalent of the Gettysburg Address. In it, Eisenhower is saying, we have a mission to fulfill. We have a long road ahead of us. We have faced hurdles in the recent past. We have faced off with a strong, determined enemy. But numbers and morality, history, is on our side. And as far as Eisenhower was concerned, this was a great crusade upon which he and his men were about to embark. And failure was not an option. And as far as Eisenhower said, the alternative, defeat, uh, this sort of loss, it was a prospect that was too bitter to contemplate. Men were going to be hurled up against Hitler's Atlantic Wall. They were going to lose a lot of men in the process, but it was something that had to be done in the name of a vast future for generations of people that hadn't even been born yet. This is what Eisenhower is trying to convey to his troops. We can see them here in their bunks, also reading newspapers, psychologically, perhaps, preparing for that big step that they are about to make. Now, this is the only map in my book. Uh, it is not necessarily a book about command decisions or strategy or anything like that. Um, rather, I was going for a more organic, boots-on-the-ground perspective of the Normandy invasion. Uh, but nonetheless, we need to get our geographic bearings here uh, a little bit. 
And uh, so as I'm sure as many of you know, there are five main beachheads. And uh, going from west to east, we have Utah and Omaha, which are the American sectors. And then we also have Gold, Juno, and Sword. And of course, Gold and Sword were going to be British beachheads. And uh, those bookend the Canadian sector, which is codenamed Juno. Uh, this beachhead, this front, it stretches about 50 miles in length. Uh, so this is a fairly daunting objective that Eisenhower's soldiers, sailors, and airmen are going to have to confront. In these initial phases, there will be anywhere between 125, perhaps up to 160,000. It's hard to get a, an exact number on how many men do go ashore on D-Day. And uh, they will be facing off with a, a German force that is uh, well under half that number. But of course, the Germans are entrenched. They have the high ground. And in many places, they will have the upper hand as a result. And of course, the first phase of this multifaceted operation is going to happen at night. And it is going to happen behind enemy lines. Uh, paratroopers of the 82nd and 101st Airborne, as well as British and Canadian paratroopers who will be landing behind their respective sectors, uh, will take off from England sometime around 8 or 9 p.m. that evening. They will cross the English Channel in one of the largest air armadas ever assembled. There will be about 700 C-47s that take off from various places in England. And those planes will be carrying 13,000 paratroopers, each of whom have, in most cases, over 100 pounds of equipment strapped to their body. So jumping from a plane with 100 pounds of equipment is a daunting enough task as it is. But these men are going to be doing so at night. They will be disoriented. And of course, on top of that, there's a fierce enemy that's shooting at them from the ground level as well. This was one of the most covered aspects of the Normandy invasion. There was a high disproportion uh, in regard to airborne stories versus you know, your standard infantry stories. Um, and it certainly speaks uh, you know, to how reporters thought at the time that they thought there was something particularly special uh, about these men as they were jumping into what could have been the abyss. Now, because uh, this posed a lot of perils and it took a lot of additional training, uh, there were very, comparatively at least, very few uh, correspondents who actually jumped with paratroopers that night. Uh, the exception, one of the exceptions, is this gentleman up here on the screen whose name is William Walton. And he worked for Time Magazine. And he went through a, a, a very condensed version of Jump Skull in, in preparation for the invasion. And uh, it didn't start off too well for him because uh, he landed in a pear tree and got a, a face full of tree limbs uh, here in the first minutes of the operation. And he was dangling there for several hours. He was only three feet off the ground, but he couldn't get to his jump knife and he couldn't cut himself loose. Eventually, a corporal finds him, cuts him loose, and as Walton later says, the next three days of my life were cat and mouse hell. He said, for the next three days, we were constantly on the move. We didn't have any food. We lost most of our supplies. The Germans had flooded these fields and pastures in the hope of drowning a lot of these paratroopers when they landed in the Normandy countryside. And uh, he said, we lived off liberated champagne and calvados for those three days. 
Uh, so uh, yeah, that was, that was the, the one thing keeping them going, alcohol and perhaps some adrenaline as well. Um, but uh, by June 9th, uh, he finally got a little bit of a break. Uh, he finally got to sit down and write his first story. And he said, snipers were still taking a wham at us now and then. Half our equipment was gone, but my typewriter was waterproofed, and I still have it. And that is the same photograph that we see in this image up here on the screen. So uh, one determined reporter, for sure. Another story that I found of interest that was uh, covered quite heavily in Stars and Stripes, the Army newspaper, was the tale of this gentleman right here, whose name was Raymond Hall, also known as Chappie, also known by his men as Jumping Jesus. Uh, he was one of the chaplains in the 101st Airborne, and we can see a photograph of him up here on the screen as well. And he jumped from one of the first planes to cross the English Channel that night, a, a C-47 train, a sky train, uh, that was uh, somewhat pessimistically entitled, That's All, Brother. And uh, he, so he, uh, he landed, and uh, much like Walton, he lived the next several days on the run, and eventually he was actually himself wounded. He received the Purple Heart for his, his actions here in Normandy. And when a reporter asked him why he was so committed to going to jump school and, you know, taking on this, this hazardous duty, um, he said, well, I suspect that it will fill up the pews at services. Um, and, and he thought that, you know, if he built this sort of camaraderie uh, with his men, uh, that they would come to services and perhaps they would find religion, which is why Chappie was there in the first place. Um, and so after this, he did not have any problem getting his men to come to services. Um, after he was wounded, he wrote home to uh, a fellow member of the clergy, and he uses this somewhat chaste, G-rated language instead of using curse words. Uh, he says, I'm as mad as a March hare. I have no idea what that means, uh, but that is some of the emotion that he was conveying here at this moment. On an interesting side point, uh, the C-47 called That's All Brother, was found just a few years ago in a Wisconsin aircraft boneyard. And uh, it was revitalized, it was remodeled, and just last month it retra retraced its journey across the English Channel with a few dozen other C-47s and a recreation of the airborne landings. And so this has a very multifaceted level of interest um, on that note. And that leads us to perhaps one of the most colorful of all units that I found in my research, a group that was ominously known as the Filthy 13, which were a platoon in the 101st Airborne as well. And I don't know how they did it necessarily, but they were able to thwart all form of authority and orders and, and everything imaginable. And every division has, you know, a group of guys like this, I suspect. And, uh, you know, they... They hadn't bathed since December of 1943 because they, they wanted to you know, prepare themselves for the rigors of living in the field. No wonder the Germans didn't smell them coming um, ahead of time. Uh, but you know, they had brass knuckles and they had uh, you know, all this other kind of makeshift equipment and weaponry. Um, as we can see from this photograph, they shaved their heads Mohawk style. They put war paint on their faces. And uh, as Stars and Stripes very colorfully noted, pity the poor Nazi who encounters them. Um, and indeed, uh, feasibly, a lot of Nazis did find that out the hard way. Uh, as an interesting side point on a pop cultural note, the Filthy 13 
became the basis for the 1967 classic film, The Dirty Dozen. Um, so that whole scene in the movie where they refuse to bathe and you know this and that, uh, that is rooted in a degree of truth, believe it or not. So the Filthy 13, a rather unforgettable bunch. Meanwhile, out on the English Channel, the largest naval armada ever assembled was beginning to show off offshore. And uh, this is a photograph that was taken several days later as troops and equipment are beginning to offload. And uh, you know, no photograph and no amount of footage can capture the essence of what this was truly like. And uh, one captain in the Navy uh, said this of this vast display. He said one could use all the adjectives such as colossal, magnificent, stupendous, marvelous, greatest, immense, and still not give any idea of the number of men and material being moved. And for some who were on these ships, they said it seemed like you could skip your way across the English Channel without ever landing in the water. Such was the amount of vessels that were assembled here at this moment. Interestingly enough, one of the ships that was uh, circling offshore was the USS Nevada, which was actually a survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, like most ships at Pearl Harbor, uh, she had been refitted, she survived the attack, and now she found herself on the other side of the planet, uh, delivering you know, these very thunderous blows back at the other Axis powers here in 1944. So a, a very uh, interesting bit of irony there, to say the least. And of course, there were a lot more ships than, than just battleships. You know, a lot of them were comprised of these LSTs that I had uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, these landing ship tanks. And of all the stories that I found of crew members on these various vessels, I found this one to be of particular interest. Um, and his name was Gerald W. Haddon. And he was a member of uh, LST-27, uh, which almost ran aground off of Omaha Beach. Uh, the vessel was unloading vehicles. One of the vehicles hit a landmine that was concealed beneath the sand. And the Quite naturally, the truck blew up, it caught a lot of other vehicles on fire, and the skipper had to decide to pull the ship away from shore and leave these men somewhat stranded on the beachhead rather than sacrificing his whole ship and even more of the men that were on it. So a very difficult command decision. Um, as all that was happening, young Haddon here was pulling men from the water, he was getting out the fire hoses, he was trying to extinguish some of these vehicles, He's helping to carry the wounded ashore. Um, both their blood and the oil on them is dripping onto the deck, a really hellish sort of scene. And he is seeing all of this at age 15. And as best as I could figure, he is the youngest American participant in the Normandy invasion. He lied about his age. He was probably about 13 years of age when he enlisted in the US Coast Guard. And uh, a lot of people don't realize the US Coast Guard played a really crucial role in this operation. And uh, shortly after the invasion, it was discovered that he had lied about his age. He was immediately sent home. He wasn't necessarily reprimanded uh, because in an unusual, perhaps sort of propaganda, propaganda way, uh, he was uh, you know, kind of used as a source of inspiration for young people uh, across the American nation. Um, you know, you may be too young to serve in the military, but you can still contribute to the war effort in some way. Just look at what this young man did. Uh, and so, uh, indeed, uh, a very compelling story uh, that we see with him. And that leads us to perhaps one of my favorite stories that, that I found in the book, and sometimes, indeed, truth is stranger than fiction. 
And it revolves around a sailor who was from Wyoming, whose name was Lawrence Patman. And Patman was an operator of a Higgins landing craft boat, and he was taking infantrymen ashore. And as he was doing that, he noticed that one of the soldiers aboard the landing craft had smuggled a small cur dog aboard the ship. And presumably this was a, a unit mascot, a, a good luck charm, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. And shortly thereafter, uh, the landing craft suffered a direct hit. And according to Patman's recollections, he was flown 50 feet into the air. He landed in the water. His landing craft sunk. He couldn't see anybody else around him in the immediate vicinity. He tried to swim, he raised his right hand, and he noticed that it was swollen to the size of a football. And he wasn't going anywhere. He couldn't swim, and as he later recalled, he thought this was it. I am going to die here by myself in the English Channel. No one is going to know what happened to me. And then all of a sudden, he hears this dog barking. And the dog's name was Muffin. And sure enough, it was the mascot, this good luck charm that one of the soldiers aboard the landing craft had brought aboard. And he called out the dog's name. He remembered it from uh, just a few moments earlier. And uh, Patman later said to a reporter, I'll be damned if Muffin didn't come over and hug right up against me. And so with his good arm, Patman put his arm over Muffin the dog. And for the next hour or so, that dog kept him afloat until uh, a British rescue vessel uh, came and fetched him out of the water. Uh, Patman lost his hand. It, it was amputated as a result of this. Um, but as he later informed a reporter in Amarillo, Texas, I owe that mutt my life. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it seems an unlikely story, but, you know, there it is in print uh, in uh, July of 1944. And uh, the, the big kicker out of all of this is at the end of the story, uh, Patman says, what the hell can I tell my grandchildren? He didn't think this was a good story because he didn't get to step ashore on France itself. Um, so it's interesting that he thought this you know, amazing rescue tale wasn't much to speak about. So an interesting view on perception. Um, not too far away on Utah Beach, which is where the first American amphibious troops are going to land, um, the assistant division commander of the 4th Division, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., uh, quickly determines that his troops have landed about a half mile off course. And for those of you who've seen the movie The Longest Day, Henry Fonda quite accurately uh, captures this moment. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. essentially says, the supplies are going to have to follow us wherever we go. We are going to start the war from right here. Um, and so even though uh, casualties are not as great on Utah Beach as on Omaha Beach, as we'll be seeing here in a moment, uh, there was a lot of death and destruction that was going to be unleashed upon this division in the coming days and in the coming months. Because by war's end, this division suffers about 250% casualties. The replacements of the replacements are being wounded and killed here as a result. But nonetheless, the 4th Infantry Division is the first one to make it off the beach, as we can see from uh, the lower right-hand photograph. Now, all that said, despite this achievement, the men of the 4th thought that they weren't getting their due press, that they weren't getting their due credit, uh, especially in Stars and Stripes. Um, and this is what the newspaper later had to say about that. 
the boys of the Ivy Division heard that a lot of people were getting credit for the advances in France. That is everybody but the fourth. And it just goes to show that there was this expectation among men in the ranks that if they were doing a good job, if they were fighting, if they were advancing, they expected to receive credit for that in the newspaper. Because after all, if they weren't getting credit, why were they there in the first place? Um, that was at least the perception that they had here uh, at this moment. You know, if this is an every man's war, how about we have an every man's story in the newspapers to go along with it? Not everything's about the airborne, not everything's about the 1st Infantry Division. How about us too? At least that's how they looked at it here um, as the invasion was underway. And this is uh, them working their way off Utah Beach uh, into some of those flooded fields. And of course, one reason why this is so, uh, the landings at Utah Beach are so heavily overlooked is because the casualties inflicted there are completely overshadowed by the, the far more gruesome and deadly level of combat that unfolds um, just a little bit to the east on Omaha Beach. Uh, at Utah, there were about 200 casualties inflicted. Meanwhile, on Omaha, there were 2,000 casualties inflicted. So the, the casualty rate was 10 times greater, and the combat went on for a far longer duration of time as both the men of the 1st Division and the 29th Division were wading their way ashore. And uh, perhaps there was no one better who captured this, visually speaking, uh, than uh, the photographer, the Hungarian-born photographer, Robert Kappa, uh, who we can see on uh, the lower left photograph here up on the screen. Uh, the image in the background is one of nine or ten or so images that he captured on the beach. Kappa was probably only on the beachhead for 15 to 30 minutes. He wasn't there that long, and as far as he was concerned, that was long enough for him. Uh, but, you know, it captures this sense of desperation. These waterlogged infantrymen, 75 pounds of gear on their back, trying desperately to work their way out of the water through this labyrinth of obstacles, uh, millions of landmines that had been placed here all along the Atlantic Wall, and those images, you know, they're seared into American memory. And uh, Americans of the time immediately realized that. You could find those images in newspapers all across the country. Um, meanwhile, Don Whitehead, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, he was one of the, the few correspondents to work his way ashore here in some of the opening waves. And uh, he does with a pen what Robert Kappa did with a camera. Uh, he said, the air vibrated from the sound. I mean, the, the chaos and the pandemonium, it was inescapable. And regardless of where you ran, uh, there was no safe place. Uh, regardless of well, where a shell landed, it was going to hit somebody. Uh, the beach had turned into this massive bottleneck. Uh, that conveyor belt, you know, of guys keep coming. They aren't going to stop just because the guys at the front can't move forward. And so it was really through sheer number and sheer force of will that a lot of these guys were able to overcome these insurmountable obstacles. And uh, these two gentlemen up on the screen were able to vividly capture that for those Americans who were not there in person. And naturally, there are a, uh, you know, just an abundance of, of human interest stories and personal stories of uh, endurance that we can find here. And uh, among them is this gentleman who we can see up here 
um, on the screen whose name was Hal Bumgarten, and he was a, a member of the 29th Infantry Division. And uh, as uh, one newspaper article said of him after the war, shell fragments creased his skull and S-mine shattered his knee and machine gun bullets smashed the small bones of his right foot. On top of that, uh, bullets or, or fragments of, of an explosive uh, shattered his jaw and uh, his, his tongue was hanging out and his, his teeth were broken and as he later said, he said that the flesh of my cheek was actually flapping up against my ear as he was working his way up the beach. And so it's a really grisly account that, that he leaves behind. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he, he stopped in the water and he tried to disinfect his wound with, with, with salt water. You can only imagine the amount of pain that this guy is going through. Amazingly, he survives. And he goes through a dozen reconstructive surgeries over the following year. And in 1945, after he's gone through all of this, he shows up at the steps of New York University and he says, I want to be a doctor. I want to help people in the same way that army doctors helped me. And none of his paperwork, none of his you know, GI Bill benefits had been processed yet. And New York University said, come on in. You can start classes. Here are free textbooks. Welcome. Uh, and so you, know, you see that this just, you know, degree of generosity and goodwill that comes out of the efforts of a lot of these men uh, as well. And uh, Baumgarten, he, he practiced medicine for the next 40 years and then for the next several decades uh, after that. Uh, he went around the country and the world telling his story and telling the story of his comrades who could not tell those stories for themselves. And he passed away just a, about two years ago. Um, and uh, he really became one of the, the major public faces of the D-Day experience in more uh, contemporary historical memory. So uh, an amazing story of survival. Another guy who has a really close call, perhaps along uh, slightly more comedic lines, is an army mechanic by the name of Mike Mizluski, who was from New York City. And this was a few days after D-Day. And uh, he was behind uh, Omaha Beach, and he was doing what mechanics do. He was fixing vehicles. He was trying to get them back into working order. And all of a sudden, he noticed this noise, this, this rumbling in, in the brush. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees a squad of Germans ready to pounce on him. And so Mizluski thinks that the best thing to do is to just play dumb. He's going to pretend like they aren't there, and he's just going to keep working on the Jeep. Ignorance is bliss, right? Uh, and so they inch a little bit closer, and Mizluski then starts to sing. And he starts to sing an old Polish tune that his mother sang to him when he was a child. And once more, out of the corner of his eye, uh, he sees these Germans, but now they have this really quizzical, puzzled look on their faces. And to his surprise, they start to sing along with him. <laughs> And as it turns out, these troops clad in German uniforms were Polish conscripts. They had been captured in 1939, and they had been slave soldiers to the Third Reich ever since. Uh, and so it might have been fate that, that dictated uh, that, that he would end up singing a Polish song to a, a bunch of Polish soldiers that were in German uniform. Um, and so after that, he fed them, and uh, they surrendered to him. And uh, they helped him fix the Jeep that he was working on. 
Uh, and then he took them into the MPs. And as best as I could tell, he is the only Normandy combatant to capture enemy troops with a blowtorch in hand. Uh, such as Stars and Stripes reported of the incident in the days that followed. Uh, once again, you can't make up this stuff. And uh, you know, this is all the stuff I was finding in the newspapers. Um, on, a, on a more uh, uh, profound note, um, something else that really caught my eye was the story of the aftermath of the, the initial assault waves, and particularly how nurses, medics, doctors, those in the Navy were doing everything in their power to try to pull these waterlogged guys uh, out of the channel and get them back into you know, a semblance of, of, of a healthy condition. And uh, as far as Martha Gellhorn was concerned, um, she was on one of these hospital ships. Uh, she had stowed away on, on a British hospital ship because the, the military initially had not allowed her, but after her ship left, there was nothing that she could do, that they could do to you know, uh, send her back. Um, but she said of this scene, it will be hard to tell you of the wounded. There were so many of them. There was no time to talk. There was too much else to do. And like after so many battles uh, of this scale, uh, you know, the, the medics and uh, the, the, those involved in the medical department are completely overwhelmed by the task before them. And uh, you know, it, it, just, uh, it, it, was, it was humbling to, to find a lot of these stories that hadn't been read since 1944. Even more eloquently, Ernie Pyle, who we've talked about before, Pulitzer Prize winner, he came ashore on D plus one on June 7th. And uh, that's around the same time that this photograph in the background was taken. And it really captures what this beachhead looked like, Omaha Beach in particular, uh, after the fighting had moved inland a ways. And Pyle said, on the beach lay expended sufficient men and mechanism for a small war. They were gone forever now, and yet we could afford it. Once again, going back to that notion that you know, the allies are going to win through sheer number, through economic and industrial might, and you know, uh, Pyle reflects on this a little bit uh, in, in an indirect way. But elsewhere in his writings, he talks about all this human litter that can be found on the beach and in the sands all these traces of the people who had fought there. And he said there were Bibles, there were shaving kits, journals with pages that would never be filled out. There were pens, rosaries. There was a tennis racket. There was a guitar. And every one of these little tangible items, every one of these objects was symbolic of an American who had fallen on or near that spot. And all of these objects carried by young men were objects that would never be used again. And it's, it's just brilliantly written. It, it, it's, it's brilliant American literature um, in addition to journalism. And you know, one thing that, that makes journalism of this time a, a little bit different from what we see today is that back in 1944, journalists often wrote from a first-person perspective. They could still be objective. Um, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't offer a deeply human level or component to it. And Ernie Pyle uh, excelled at that in, in amazing ways. And this is just one example of how he did so. Meanwhile, back in the United States, which uh, roughly the last third of my book covers, 
the American people are responding to all of this. And they're wondering, are we supposed to celebrate this? Are we supposed to mourn D-Day? How? And, and what, what is the most fitting way to commemorate this vast undertaking? And by and large, what we see in a lot of American communities is what we see in the photo on the screen, is that places of worship were opened up. They stayed open for 24 hours. Uh, this photograph uh, is a synagogue in New York City, which uh, I, I ended up finding, and it still stands, and it's in operation to this very day. Uh, but, you know, the words on that sign truly speak volumes as to how Americans were feeling at this moment. This synagogue will be open for 24 hours for special services on D-Day. All are welcome. There was a degree of unity and togetherness that came out of all of this strife that could be found overseas. And in a lot of American communities, it didn't matter what your religion was, it didn't matter what your skin color was, we're Americans and we are in this thing together. And that, that is the, the degree of, of unity uh, that we see here time and again, you know, all throughout America. And it's really compelling stuff, um, you know, when you look at all the first-hand accounts of what's happening not only overseas, but here at home as well. Now, sadly, um, this unity wouldn't be existing everywhere. We'll get to that here in a moment. Uh, but, you know, I, I, this is one of my favorite photographs, and, and this is why I decided to put it on... Uh, the back cover of my book. Uh, but this was taken in Times Square on June 6th. Uh, all of these were, uh, but the one in the, the background particularly uh, strikes me. And as, as one person said, it seemed like time stood still. That everyone was standing there, you know, under the, the, the news ticker, uh, you know, as word of bombardment on the French coast was, was underway. And, uh, you know, and uh, people just stood transfixed by the power of the story and the knowledge of what was going on uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and, you know, it was just a very, very powerful moment uh, that's often overlooked when we think about the broader story of D-Day. Now, sadly, uh, this level of unity would not be found in all levels of American society because on June 6th, there were also a lot of widespread labor strikes that were ongoing in the United States. And it had the potential to, to grind you know, America's industrial capacity to a halt. And one place where this was happening was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And this labor strike in particular was not about working hours or fees or safety in the workplace. Um, it really came down to prejudice, unfortunately. In a Wright Aeronautical shop in Cincinnati, uh, several thousand workers had refused to work because six African-American employees had been hired on to work the metal shop. Uh, and of course, you know, this is a, a plant that is now not making you know, aircraft pieces as a result. Um, and so, you know, it hints at the fact that, you know, despite the, the fact that uh, America is fighting for this notion of justice and, and moral superiority, um, that not everything back home is as perfect as what some people were meant to believe. And as the Cincinnati Post rightfully said and called out these workers, I said, you right workers, what will you say to the fathers and mothers of those men who fall in France? Um, and so everything that's going on here in Cincinnati 
uh, points out an even larger theme that is happening in America at that time, and it's a somewhat unpleasant one at that. Um, believe it or not, in 1944, and as D-Day is happening, uh, the Ku Klux Klan dissolves. They don't have enough members to, to keep their efforts going. And there's some of their members in, in the military, and there's some people you know, uh, involved in the war effort. And uh, the Klan, though, promised to reincarnate when the war came to an end. And it does so in, in a very big way in the 1950s, of course, in uh, rebuttal to the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but the newspapers of the time, of, of June 1944, as the invasion of Normandy is happening, has all sorts of interesting things to, to say on all of this. Um, the Benton Harbor News Palladium of Michigan said, probably Adolf Hitler never heard of the Ku Klux Klan, but the Klan and Hitler's Nazi party were blood relations. And then also we have the Pittsburgh Courier saying, on the Normandy beachhead, on D-Day, whom did the white soldier from Georgia or Florida fear the more? The armed Negro beside him or the German who is white like himself? And so these are some very interesting philosophical questions being posed to the American people at this time. And, you know, interestingly enough, um, for a lot of Americans, both women and minorities, they saw D-Day as a foundation for a better society, for societal progress that would come in the months and years after the war. And D-Day, in that context, was perceived as this rebirth and this kind of social reawakening in the United States as a result. And that was perhaps one of the most surprising things that I found uh, amidst all of my research. Um, so as uh, we get near the end of our uh, presentation here, um, just a, a few concluding thoughts. Uh, this social strife on the home front was far from the minds of, you know, of course, GIs who were still on the battlefront. And uh, two weeks after D-Day, paratroopers of the 101st Airborne gathered in the town square of Carentan, uh, just a few miles in from the shores. And uh, I was just here a few weeks ago, and the street looks exactly the same. It's like walking into a time capsule. And uh, they had a, an award ceremony for a, a number of the soldiers who had gone uh, above and beyond the call of duty. And after this award ceremony, uh, the paratroopers were taken into the nearby theater, which was called Le Jean d'Arc. We can see a, a picture of the inside of it here. And they were treated to a movie, Andy Hardy's A Blonde Trouble, <laughs> starring the, the recently inducted Mickey Rooney. And I just, you know, and this moment just spoke volumes to me because, you know, I thought, wow, you know, these men had just been decorated for their deeds in combat. Hours or days prior to this, they had been out in the Normandy hedgerows killing people. And now they're watching a slapstick comedy in a theater of a town that they just liberated. And for those 90 minutes that they were watching this movie, they were kids again. And you know, that, that really, that really it, there was a, a very human moment that I found here, um, you know, in, in this movie theater in Carentan. And, uh, you know, they were slapping each other on the back, and they were making cat calls about, you know, the blonde actresses in the movie, and, you know, they were doing the stuff that, you know, you would expect teenagers and 20-somethings to, to do today. And they did all of this, and they had, they had this moment of escape, even as the, the sound of artillery still echoed in the distance. And on top of that, too, uh, for the four years of German occupation in France, uh, the local residents weren't allowed to go see movies in this theater. 
The Germans took control of it. They showed German movies. They didn't allow any French people until it was Jean d'Arc to, to see any cinema. And so the liberation of this theater and the town getting its theater back, I, I, I just think there's, there's no better way to symbolize liberation and, and why this allied force was there in the first place. And uh, it's just a, a very, very notable and I think emotional moment that we can find in that story. Of course, the war goes on. D-Day is in many ways not the end, but the beginning of the final chapter of the war in Europe. Uh, today, you can travel from Normandy to Paris in about three and a half hours. For the Allies, it took them two and a half months. Such was the, the fierce determination of the German troops in the hedgerow country of France. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, by late August of 1944, here we can see troops of the 28th Division marching down the main thoroughfare in France. And of course, by May of 1945, the war in Europe comes to an end. 75 years onward, we can still find all these very powerful stories. There's still so much that we can learn from the invasion of Normandy. And this one in particular is one that I found that, that, that rings true in a more contemporary sense. Henry and Louis Piper were from South Dakota. They were 19 years of age when they took troops to Normandy. And they did so on the ship that we can see here on LST 523. Two weeks after D-Day, the LST struck a, a mine, an underwater mine, off of Utah Beach, and the Piper brothers, twin brothers, uh, as well as 115 crewmates were killed in that explosion. Louis' remains were recovered, but Henry's remains were missing. And his parents never had the consolation of finding out what exactly happened to him. They never had the ability to go to his grave. Louis was buried in the Normandy American Cemetery. A lot of the, the sailors were recovered from that wreckage. And lo and behold, in 2017, it was discovered that Henry's remains were actually buried in one of the unknown plots in the Normandy American Cemetery. And shortly thereafter, uh, these two brothers were reunited after 74 years. And their nieces and their nephews, who they never met, uh, came and saw them reunited in death. And, you know, it, it speaks to how immediate uh, and how close, you know, World War II is to us. And I suspect almost every single one of you in this room knew a World War II veteran. Your, your parents or an uncle or an aunt uh, was in World War II or, or participated in it in some capacity. And it continues to uh, affect not only our global society in really incredible ways, but it also affects us as individuals and families as well. And of course, we would be remiss if we forgot that. When one goes and visits the Normandy American Cemetery, uh, there's really only one word that can sum it up, and that's awe. There are nearly 9,400 Americans buried there. That accounts for only 2% of the Americans who give their lives in the Second World War, and even a, a more trivial number of the, the total number of people killed in the Second World War as a global conflict. And when we go and visit these places, you know, it begs the question, what do we owe the dead? 
It's a really important question, even three quarters of a century onward. And I think that their supreme commander, he tried to, to grapple with that and answer that as best as he could, um, even as, as the war was ongoing. And this is what he told reporters in 1944. He said, our countries fight best when our people are best informed. I should feel disturbed if I thought that I or my public relations staff were held as anything but friends of the press. I will never tell you anything false. For Eisenhower, this is what he owed, and this is what his staff owed to the dead who had passed away. And this is also you know, the mantle being thrown down on us as fellow citizens. If we want to truly realize why these men were fighting, we need to be informed of current events. We need to have an understanding of what's going on in the world. And really, that's the only way to prevent something like this from happening again. And certainly, that is what Eisenhower had in mind 20 years later, when in the spring of 1964, he and CBS journalist Walter Cronkite returned to Normandy. And Eisenhower, who was now out of his presidency, only had five years of life left in him. This is what he concluded as he walked through that same cemetery. He said, I devoutly hope that we will never again have to see scenes such as these. I think and hope and pray that humanity will learn more than we had learned up to that time. But these people gave us a chance, and they bought time for us so that we can do better than we have done before. And over a half a century, after this very wise Supreme Allied Commander said this, I think these words still ring true. What do we owe the dead? What are we going to do with this chance that they gave us 75 years ago? And if anything else, that's what I hope you walk away with tonight. Thank you for coming out to my presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just a few minutes for just a few questions. So if anybody would like to get us started, we have one right over here. Uh, the chaplain of the 502nd PIR. Yes, sir. Uh, he, his comment was he was mad as a March Hare, and you, you indicated you didn't know what he meant. The March Hare is a character from Alice in Wonderland. Ah, okay. From the Tea Party. And... Uh, in Alice in Wonderland, and the March Hare is not mad, angry. The March Hare is going out of his mind. Mm. So that officer, chaplain, three days of war without anything going to sustain him was going out of his mind. That's good to know. A good piece of literary context behind the story. One other quick sure. comment. The 28th Infantry Division, the Keystone, it's red. It's red for a reason. The losses from 28th Infantry Division during World War I and World War II were horrendous. The bloody bucket. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Do we have any other questions? Oh, here we go, right here in front. Of the hundreds of stories and thousands of stories, how did you, use, how did you choose which ones to use? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, and I was telling some other folks earlier this evening, uh, you know, I could fill a whole other book with stories that I did incorporate. Um, but, you know, it really came down to how much additional context could I find about that person? Could I cross-reference their story with other newspaper articles? Did they write a memoir after the war? Were they interviewed by an oral historian after the war? Um, and so there were a bunch of different puzzle pieces that, that I had to put together. Um, but ultimately, it came down to what is the best and most revealing and most compelling human story that I thought people would be interested in reading about. And on top of that, too, uh, what has never been written about before? Uh, about 80% of this book has not been read about since 1944. And so I really tried to give a voice to those who had been lost to the pages of history. Thank you. Right, ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question. Anybody? Going once, twice, three times. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present uh, for just a few moments uh, Mr. Mangelsdorf, the director of the Army Heritage and Education Center. Don't go away, Jared. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so Jared Frederick in his book, Dispatches of D-Day. Let's have a round of applause for Jared. Thank you. So, uh, so Jared, as a small token of appreciation, we, uh, it is, uh, as you know, as a, as a researcher of the Army, it's traditional that we reward excellence with the presentation of a, of a coin, and, uh, and so we have this coin for you that we hope oh. that you would take Thank as, you. Uh, as a memory of tonight. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.